0: Welcome to The Business Bookshelf, where I interview business authors and talk about their newly released books. Today I interview Dr. Graham Boyd about his book he co-authored called Rebuild, The Economy, Leadership and You. Graham is an experienced entrepreneur and consultant leading businesses to become deliberately developmental and self-governing, with a fair share as Commons Incorporation. He recently completed transforming an international non-profit into three for-profits and now growing a company making it easy for businesses and leaders to continuously adapt themselves and to rise to the adaptive challenges they are facing. Graham is the co-author of the book Rebuild, The Economy, Leadership and You. This is how the book is described on Amazon. We believe that there's never been a better time to start businesses and build an economy that works for all of us and all our needs. This book gives builders of a better world the toolkit and building blocks capable of doing the job because each is designed for a regenerative, sustainable, circular economy that delivers a good life for all within the planet's boundaries. So this interview is really something to look forward to. And so here we go. Enjoy the interview.
1: Thank you very much, Lance. It's awesome to
0: be here with you. It's fantastic. I, I, I can't think of when I've looked forward to the interview more than this interview with you. Um, Graham, we, you've been all over the world. What do you like and enjoy doing where you live? And where do you live at the moment?
1: So I'm living in Belgium at the moment. And there are a lot of things that I enjoy about Belgium. One of the things I really enjoy in Belgium is the Belgian food. Mm. It has a cuisine that for me is a perfect blend of the, the French Italian Southern European cuisines and the Germanic Northern European cuisines. It's perhaps the, I possibly the only country in the world where high end beer and high end wines have an equal status and prestige in top wow. end restaurants. Um, The other thing I really enjoy about Belgium is that it's a small country. So within an hour to 90 minutes of where I live in Brussels, I can either be on the coast in the beach or in the hilly areas. uh, So a wide range of landscape. I can go hiking, motorcycling in the forests, or head over to the beach and have some sunshine and long distance views towards the horizon.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, you know, I have heard, I have never been to Brussels, but I have heard it's the sort of culinary capital of Europe, um, or very, very prominent in that regard. When did you start, do you regularly go to restaurants? And when did you start going again after COVID and lockdown?
1: So I won't say I go regularly to restaurants, I also enjoy cooking myself. And I often Mm. find that I can, I can cook a really good meal myself. So I, I have a I get fussy when I go to restaurants, but I have only just started going into restaurants again over the past four weeks now. Mm. And I'm still very cautious about where and when I go. I have at least been double immunized now. So I'm a little bit more adventurous going out than I was.
0: Yeah. I've read that in France that People who are not in, uh, have not had the vaccine are not going to be able to go to restaurants and stuff, which I, I guess is a good thing. So back on to you, Graham. Um, yes. Could you give us an overview of your career? You've had a very interesting, varied career. Um, could, so could you give us an overview of it?
1: Yes, it's been quite an unusual career. So when I was growing up in South Africa, I was really into physics, especially particle physics. And I did particle physics during my studies at UCT, Mm. did my PhD in particle physics in Germany, and worked as an academic researcher in particle physics theory, then in Germany, Italy, and Japan. And at that stage, I reached the conclusion that whilst I loved physics, what I really loved was broad, multidisciplinary are uh, spread across even more than just physics. But to get a permanent position in physics, you needed to become a very narrow specialist. And that wasn't me. Mm. So I changed direction completely and joined Procter & Gamble in Belgium then as an R&D manager and had a fantastic time in Png in Belgium for five years, was then sent off to China and was part of growing PNG's operations in China spent 5 years in China and towards the end of my time in China which was 2007 is when I returned to Belgium from China that was where I'd gone through the first coronavirus lockdown in Beijing the oil price hitting 150 dollars a barrel mm. looking at how China was rapidly growing and let's say, catching up with the rest of the world, but within the existing economic model. And it became more and more clear to me then that what I'd been reading and hearing about in the Limits to Growth book published in 1972, all of this was really starting to become visible. The climate challenge, resource depletion, overshooting the Earth's capacity to carry us, all of that was becoming so visible. I tried to change things inside PNG and just realized that there are way too many anchors holding PNG where it is,
0: yeah.
1: that PNG was never going to be able to change fast enough. And that triggered me leaving PNG in 2008, whereupon I started up a renewable energy company. Got involved in starting up a think tank, a leadership consultancy after that. And through all of this, I was wrestling with the whole question of what are these anchors that prevent companies from changing when their business context demands that they change really fast and change in a big way? Mm. Why is it that Kodak could not change fast enough for the digital photography revolution, even though Kodak invented digital photography, Yeah, you know, what's behind it? So that's what I've been doing then for the past 13 years now is figuring out the answers to that question. What are the anchors holding business stable in a dysfunctional context or preventing them from changing? And what can we do to build businesses that are really fit for purpose for the challenges we face today?
0: Mm. Yeah, I like that. And um, one of the examples that I always use for that is like horse-grown buggies in New York and America, that the leaders of the companies that cr- built those particular means of transport, did not one of them transition to be the leader of the you know the car, the automobile. it's the same as Kodak. And I think companies these days are a lot more um, in tune, I hope, with what what needs to change to get out of that immune system that attacks companies. Anyway, Graham, um, your book, and I loved reading it. It's called Rebuild the Economy, Leadership and You. And I, I love the references to South Africa and that you wrote the book in South Africa or parts of the book in South Africa. And Graham, could you tell us the purpose of writing it and give us a brief overview of it?
1: Yes, the, there are a few purposes behind writing it. In one level, there's a very selfish purpose. I, the core thing that I'm all about is building a world that works for all. Mm. And part of my reason to write the book was to simply have a reference for me in one place of everything that I was finding that was necessary to build a world that works for all. So there was that selfish purpose. The other side of it was I was recognizing more and more that there were a huge number of people who were doing their very best to build a world that worked for all. Lots of initiatives like the triple bottom line from Elkington, conscious capitalism, even things like fair trade, Mm. many, many initiatives... And Michael
0: Porter with shared value and that sort of thing.
1: Exactly. Michael Porter with shared values, all of shared value, all of these by my standard of actually turning ourselves around so that we're no longer heading towards global system collapse, but heading away from system collapse. None of them were succeeding. Each of them at best was slowing down our headlong rush towards the cliff of global systems collapse. None of them was turning us around. Yeah. And so the other reason for writing the book is so that everybody else could benefit from whatever was useful in what we'd been developing in Evolute 6 to build businesses that are fundamentally able to build a world that works for all, which most of our businesses today are simply not designed to do.
0: Well, I love the ambition of the book. That is extremely ambitious, and I love that. Um, And I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about your book now. And it's divided into parts, Graham. And you being, you you said you have your doctorate in high energy physics, which I'd like to talk to you about a little later, selfishly in a way. But I was taken by surprise of your first part of your book, because it's a business book essentially, although it's divided into you know how you look at yourself and how you look at leadership. But your first part of your book is titled Art and Physics, which took me by surprise. Could you tell me why you start writing the book and, and, and have the first section about art and physics?
1: Gladly. So at the heart of the job of any business leader, mm is to steer the company into the future. That's the job of any business leader, steer the company into the future. To do that well, a business leader needs to see really clearly where the future is likely to be and how to get there. In other words, they need to see what are the problems and opportunities that are already becoming visible today but that are a really critical part of the business context in the future. And they need to see options to solve the problems and grab the opportunities. So the art of seeing what really is, mm. independently of our preconceived ideas of what we ought to be seeing, is one of the most essential skills for any business leader. Yeah. And a place where people are trained in how to see things that are hidden from others is art and physics. Mm. The Einstein with relativity, the various researchers to develop quantum mechanics, they needed to develop the ability to see things that were contrary to what the existing logic told them they ought to see. And similarly, artists like Picasso recognized that when he looked at a horse, for example, as he said, what he paints when he paints a horse is horse-ness. It might not look like the image you normally have in mind when you first see a horse, but you ought to see more than just the left-hand profile of a horse. You ought to see the essence of the hosts. Mm. And so Jack and I, when we wrote the book, we started with that. What are all of the lenses that we can start to use that will enable us to see what is currently hidden from us? And hence, art and physics, we took as the two sources of inspiration for where can we find examples of people who were extremely gifted at finding lenses that nobody else had ever thought of using, yeah. and using them to see things more clearly, to see what was hidden.
0: Hmm. And so, to do that takes a lot of effort and focus, I would think. And you know, looking at things from a different angle or a lens, as you say, and so a side question that's not in the script is do you think the leaders or the ceos or the you know senior leaders in an organization i imagine in the past they were more interested in driving the company forward you know coming up with strategies do you think they now need to spend a lot of their time thinking and contemplating and looking at the business from different angles and and looking like medium to long-term and strategies rather than being hands-on and driving the company. Do you think there's a more of a focus on that area of leadership now?
1: There's absolutely a much bigger need for that than ever before. The world we're living in is far more nebulous, far less predictable than it ever has been before which means a combination of not so much thinking in the traditional sense of linear logical thinking that most people are trained in, but much more thinking in terms of deeply understanding what are the patterns and being able to see where the pattern might have changed itself to be in one, two, five or 10 years time a much deeper grasp of what are the different processes that are in flow and movement? What is the interrelatedness between different components of the system you're embedded in that you currently think have no relationship between each other? Well, how might they actually be related at a much deeper level? And that opens up space for leaders to be able to see What are the opportunities to really transform something rather than to simply try to predict in a linear fashion what's going to happen next year and go with the flow? Yeah, Where this becomes critical, if we look at something like the coronavirus, many business leaders, let alone politicians, were taken by surprise by the coronavirus, which ought not to have happened because... the SARS coronavirus 1 hit the world in 2002. We had the MERS almost pandemic about 10 years after that. Both of those were coronaviruses, just the same as our current COVID-19 cause is a coronavirus. So all of the signals that we were heading towards at some unknown point in the future a global pandemic triggered by a deadly coronavirus the signals were there all that's happening now with covid-19 is that the pattern is reproducing itself in a far more severe way mm. the fact that so few people saw that is pointing at how few political and business leaders have developed the capacity needed to to see how the future can evolve in this very nebulous, complex, uncertain um, space where Mm. nothing happens linearly. And when something happens, it can often change exponentially rather than linearly. By the time the signs are clear, it's already too late to do anything.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. and. I don't know if it's true, but I, I've been told that that's the success of Elon Musk in that he looks at the trajectory of exponential technologies and then maps out how his company can be structured and perform when that you know that exponential technology, battery and solar and whatever reaches that point and then his company will be like right in that center to exploit it. And I I don't know if I'm giving too much credit for Elon Musk, but he's been very successful as he, (laughs) anyway, I think anyone will imagine. Um, So I agree with you completely. Um, Graham, one of the things that comes up, one of the central themes um, is adaptive strategy. Is that what you were talking about now? Is that what you would, or is adaptive strategy something different?
1: That's exactly what I'm talking about yeah. now. You know, um, Dave Snowden has come up with some superb frameworks to really understand the difference between simple processes, complicated processes or complex processes. Um, and the essence of where the world is today is what Dave Snowden would refer to as a complex process or possibly even as a chaotic process. And so an adaptive strategy is the kind of strategy a company needs to thrive in a world that is not merely complicated, but is actually complex. And the essence of complex is that you cannot predict what is going to happen in any sense of accuracy. In other words, you cannot ever get enough data fast enough and cheaply enough to be able to do any kind of solid analysis and use the analysis to determine what to do. So an adaptive strategy is one that thrives in that kind of world. And a core element of what we're pointing at with an adaptive strategy is also what is referred to as the difference between a technical challenge and an adaptive challenge. And the other essence of an adaptive challenge, and this is very relevant to Dave Snowden's complex business scenarios, Mm. an adaptive challenge is one where who you are is not fit for purpose to address the challenge that you're dealing with. Yeah. You actually need to change who you are to face up to the challenge. And I'll bring it back to Kodak. Part of the reason why Kodak, even though they invented digital photography, was never able to build a business from it, is that they were Kodak as a whole. The Kodak culture was one where Kodak as an organization had an identity of we are a company that builds or create superb images through superior chemistry yeah they did not see themselves as a company that creates lifestyle um, a company that enables people to capture fleeting moments of their life and share their lifestyle with others that was just not part of how kodak as a company saw themselves And the individual leaders in Kodak, the the shareholders, the board members, they all had a self-identity that created and was created by the image of Kodak as this kind of chemical image creation company. Mm. And so for Kodak to leap onto everything that digital photography has brought today, most of which has very little to do with, the kind of high quality photographic perfection that Kodak was striving for to leap onto that, the leaders of Kodak and the Kodak culture needed to change its self perception before they could even begin building a digital photography business, which is an adaptive strategy. Then is one that includes how do I change who I am as much as how do I Sense into what is beginning to become visible about where the future might be in five or ten years' time, but where there's no simple logical analysis that can prove to me that that's what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. So I've done a lot of studying and in, uh, in this on myself as well. And the problem is that if you introduce something that disrupts a company's um, revenue streams, then that will affect people's bonuses and the shareholders will be unhappy as well. And so that's, you know, where their corporate immune system tries to kill off something that is going to disrupt the way they operate and the way they think, just like you said, Graham. And so that's why like the edge initiatives where you make an espresso um, and you create that as a side company and you don't disrupt necessarily the, the mother company of making instant coffee, then you bring out Nespresso, which becomes a billion dollar company or whatever. Um, but it still is, you know, that's it, it completely separate. But that that's by the by, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to get onto that whole subject either, Graham. Um, Graham, I, before I get onto the fair shares commons, um, which is also a major principle in your book, and I'd love to hear more about it. Um, I remember this is a completely side side tangent, but you mentioned it in your book, and it's a it was you know so I remember my dad first discovering quantum physics, and being amazed that something was you know something there wasn't actually there, and you can imagine you almost imagine it being there and it will be there uh, and a very mystical type of scenario with quantum physics. Could you possibly explain that in sort of layman's terms on how quantum physics works and? What you know, you say in your book, quantum physics is clear when you look at an electron, what you see and can say about it is not the same as what it is. So, that that is very mysterious. Uh, Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yes, this is one of what I think is one of the biggest um, breakthroughs that quantum physicists needed to make, and one of the biggest gifts that quantum physics has given to us is this realization that we, we can never directly know what is actually there. We're always getting a very limited amount of information coming into us. So you know, if, if we try to look at an electron What quantum physics said was even the process of looking at the electron disturbs whatever it was before you look at it. And when you look at it, it's different to what it would be if you weren't looking at it. Amazing. And what that really means is that physicists can never actually observe an electron in isolation. All we can ever see is for example, what is sometimes called the dressed electron. We can only see the electron after it has been dressed up by its interactions with everything else that it's currently interacting with, including the vacuum and other virtual electrons. And what that then means is because we're never actually directly seeing in a pure way what it actually is, we can never actually ever know what it is, and that then leads to one of the philosophies of physics, being that physics is the study of what we can say about what is, rather than what actually is. So it's the study of, if I say that an electron is here, how confidently can I say that? If I say that the electron is there, how confidently can I say that? And That then leads your links to part of the essence of quantum physics is taking it one stage further and saying the electron doesn't even know where it is, because even the electron cannot figure out the answer to the question I am in isolation from everything else that it is surrounded by and interacting with. Which takes us back to what many South Africans um, or Southern Africans know as Ubuntu. I am because we are. I cannot know who I am in isolation from all of the other people I'm interacting with, which is why this is so relevant to business leaders and businesses. Who a business leader is, is very much a function of who they are surrounded by, who a company is is also very much influenced by and a function of everything else that they're embedded in.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Graham. that was really interesting. And the last thing I want to talk to you about your book is is a very important theme, which is something called Fair Shares Commons. And and I just must remind the listeners that Graham's just giving an extremely high level overview to whatever he's talking about. Please, please, please buy the book. And we're speaking to Graham Boyd, and his book is called Rebuild, the Economy, Leadership, and You. Um, And so fair shares commons, what what is that? What what is that term? Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: So that is something that is both very new and very old. So the the fair shares commons is something that people like Professor Rory Ridley-Duff, myself, and a few others have worked on developing. The trigger for this is linked to what we've just been saying, the realization that what an individual business leader can do depends on what they are currently embedded in. Almost all business leaders today are embedded in limited companies, whether it's a private or a public limited company. And that means that what a business leader can do is constrained by the way that the company is incorporated, by the kinds of investors that they have on board, by the choices that those investors make in the annual general meeting. If I take as an example, Paul Polman. After Paul Polman left P&G, he went briefly through Nestle and then into Unilever as CEO. And one of his very first acts was to say, we are going to stop issuing quarterly reports and any investor that doesn't like that is not the kind of investor we want to have in our company. So he was directly recognizing what we were saying that many people in business today would love to be doing far better than they currently are around all of the challenges that the planet is facing from the challenges around climate, sustainable development goals, wherever you look. However, they are constrained by the power of the investors in the general meetings who elect the board, who take the major decisions, which also shapes in some ways, the kinds of people who come into companies And I'll come back to Paul Polman for a moment. Mm. Towards the end of his tenure as Unilever CEO, Unilever was under threat of a hostile takeover from Kraft. Hmm. And Paul Polman needed to dial back quite a few of the things that he had been attempting to push forwards at full speed to take Unilever even deeper down a path towards being a fully sustainable business or even a regenerative business. Hmm. And that was simply because for the short term, people were not seeing clearly what Paul's activities for Unilever long-term meant Mm. and how what he was doing then was setting Unilever up to be really successful five, 10, 20 years in the Mm. future. And that this short-term dip in the share price was simply the rest of the world not seeing clearly what Paul Polman was seeing clearly because most other people don't have access to the lenses that he has to see the trends, the patterns that he was seeing, Mm. just like with Elon Musk, most people at the beginning of Elon Musk's uh, work didn't believe that he could succeed because they were not seeing clearly the trends that he could see clearly. Yeah. So, The Fair Shares Commons, then coming back to that, what we've recognized, one of the biggest anchors holding companies back from responding to the current context is that they're incorporated purely around financial capital and all of the power in the general meetings is held by the representatives of financial capital which was fine when companies were invented 400 years ago and financial capital was the only capital that was scarce and all other capitals were plentiful. Today, we're in a world where financial capital is actually plentiful and all other capitals are scarce. Mm. So we're now in a world where the tail is wagging the dog. The essence of the fair shares commons is saying to build a world that works for all We need to build businesses that work for all of the kinds of capital that come in the human capitals, the natural capitals, as well as financial capital. It's saying that having either for profit businesses or non profit businesses as if they were opposites cannot work. We need to create a business form that recognizes all capitals, that is neither for-profit nor non-profit but is actually for-profit and non-profit that it includes the best of both Mm. and that's really the essence of the fair shares commons it's building a company where all of the capitals all of the representatives of the capitals have engagement in governing the company steering it into the future which means that all of And and they have an appropriate share of the wealth that the company generates, which means that all of the stakeholders in the company are maximally coherent in contributing to the company being successful. But now success is defined as building a world that works for all, including making money. Mm. profit is not any less important than it is today it's as important than it as it is today all we do is the regeneration of all of the other capitals is as important as profit rather than insignificant and not part of the governance
0: yeah yeah absolutely um, and Paul Polman is a big compa- uh, advocate of the purpose-driven organization. And so I think he's also had tremendous success And speaking to what you're saying, is that his, his brands or the brands in Unilever are very purpose-driven individually and they have to have a purpose uh, for, and that's been tremendously successful for them as well. Um, Graham, it's been fascinating talking to you about your book and I just want to remind the listeners that your book is called "Rebuild the Economy, Leadership, and You. And to end the interview, Graham, could you tell us a little bit about Evolute 6 and what services it offers? What does Evolute 6 do? And how people can contact you if they want to find out more?
1: Yes. So I'll pick up from what you've just said about Paul Pullman and purpose. Yeah. The part of what we do is help companies make their purpose anti-fragile, or at least resilient rather than fragile. And Unilever, if Kraft had completed their hostile takeover of Unilever, much of what Paul Polman had been doing to build purpose could have been ripped out within 24 hours. Mm. So part of the, the, the products that we offer for existing companies we provide consulting and training in how do you develop a broader range of lenses to see what is and to see business opportunities that are currently hidden from view. We offer ourselves and together with our partners programs to support business leaders in really changing their self-identity where their identity is the limit to rising to adaptive challenges. And we're developing as fast as we can, also programs for startups. We're hard at work on a startup factory, in particular targeting mid-career transitions or businesses that want to transform themselves to do a whole system transformation of the entire business from the way it's incorporated, the organization design, how people interact with each other, the culture, and how individual development works to build ecosystems of businesses that truly have the power to rise to the adaptive challenges that the world is facing yeah. around our climate challenges, et cetera. And I would say that that now is our flagship product, the startup factory. So any individual who wants to go into a career transition with an emphasis on working in the world of startups towards addressing the global challenges we're facing. That going forward is our flagship product. Mm. Of course, we will continue with all of our consulting operations for existing businesses that also want to rise to the challenge.
0: Wow. And t- to I love contact- the scope of your ambition. That's fantastic.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Lance. Uh-
0: Before you give the contact details, I just want to tell the listeners that it's www.evolutesix.com, so so the the number six. And then there's a, a menu for startups that you can look at the startup program and the startup university and Evoluta and network events and those kind of things. And just before you give the contact details, I believe you're going to have at least one more book after this or a series of books. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So Jack and I are already working on a series of volumes that will follow on from this book. One part of these successor books will be compendiums of contributed articles related to the span of themes in Rebuild, both from people who are critical of what we propose, as well as people who are supporting. Mm. And then we also have a couple of books that we're busy working on to go deeper into just how do you put this into practice? So Rebuild is, it is a do-it-yourself guide, but there are quite a few, each chapter has been distilled down to the essence. Mm. So we're writing a few other books over the course of the next few years, expanding each part into a complete book by itself, which will then be a much deeper dive into the practice of doing that.
0: Yeah, amazing. Uh, so Graham, i sorry, I've, I interrupted you when you were giving your contact details and how people can link up with you.
1: Yes. So the other website I'd also point people at is my personal website, which is where the book is summarized and where you can look at videos and stuff like that as well. That Boyd.biz, graham-boy.biz, G-R-A-H-A-M-B-O-Y-D.biz. And for people who want a taste of the book, there's a PDF that you can download from that website as well. Sure. Jack and I have a commitment yeah, if you think of South Africa, this book, yes, it's available in print in South Africa, but it's what, 650 Rand yeah. today from exclusive, yeah. which is beyond the price point of many South Africans. So, our commitment is that the PDF will always be available as a free download so that nobody is prevented from benefiting from what we've developed simply because they are don't have enough money in their wallet or are living in a country where the typical monthly income is significantly lower than Europe or the rest of the world. Mm. And to to connect with me, Twitter is always a good place. Graham Boyd, PhD. LinkedIn as well, Graham Boyd, PhD. Mm. And if you want to email me, there are email addresses on the Evolute 6 website yes. and also graham at evolutesix.com. 6com
0: Wonderful. I mean, yes, Graham, that's what I love about this podcast is that I get these books sent to me because I, I fall into the category of probably not being able to afford the books that are available that I would like to read. Um, so, Graham, thank you so much for joining today. And thank you again for your book, Rebuild the Economy leadership in you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I hope to read the, the, the rest of your books when they come out with, with great interest. Thank you so much.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Lance.
0: And I hope you, the listener, found this as interesting and useful as I did. So please go and buy the book. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is at lance.ideastorm.ca.za and the website is www.ideastorm.ca.za. So until next uh, Sunday, Goodbye and stay well. Bye-bye, everyone.